you're tuned into Economic and Political Weekly's new podcast show, Research Radio. We hope to bring academic rigor to ask and address complex questions. Our show lets you learn directly from researchers who are at the forefront of their fields. I'm your host Abhishek, and today I'm going to join many others in asking, how has the Bharatiya Janata Party-led government justified radically altering India's citizenship law with the Citizenship Amendment Act, or CAA, passed last December? Writer of the groundbreaking book on the politics of citizenship in India, Mapping Citizenship in India, Professor Anupama Roy from the Center for Political Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University joins me in investigating this question. She'll be sharing research she published in EPW in December last year. Thank you so much, Professor Anupama Roy, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on the show, Abhishek. Would you like to start by telling us about what got you interested in researching about citizenship in India? It's not as if I started researching on this question recently. I've had a long-standing and abiding interest in the questions of citizenship in India, which actually began in the 1990s when I was doing my PhD in the State University of New York in Binghamton. And uh, this was also a period when there was an increased resurgence of interest in citizenship for a variety of reasons. The globalization of economy, the unprecedented scale of uh, transnational movement of workers and refugees, uh, the way in which technological advancement and expansion had almost transformed the ways in which people were communicating and the rapid flow of information and images, rapid flow of people crossing borders for different reasons, almost changed the way in which people had been looking at citizenship. A lot of people started saying that that the nation state could no longer be seen as the primary unit of citizenship identity or even as the sole source of citizens' rights and uh, that we needed to think of citizenship differently. The idea that the individual, the masked individual, who could not be identified on the basis of any ascriptive identities was the uh, the sole bearer of rights or the only way one could think of a citizen was constantly being substituted by the idea that the individual actually belonged to specific communities and drew a sense of identification or even the sense of relationship uh, she had with the world because of you know, the way in which he or she belonged to that community. And that was also an, an, a significant source of identification, membership, desires, aspirations that people would have that would shape the way in which people related to the national uh, community itself. So, so if one was to look at the life of the Citizenship Act, the contemporary moment is important because we stand at the culmination of uh, a movement that has taken in the act itself, the life of the law, citizenship law in India, uh, from its inception in 1955 through its various amendments in 1985, 2003 and 2005, which show that there is steady movement towards the affirmation of citizenship's relationship with use sanguinis or blood ties and descent. So this, this was a movement that I had already identified in my earlier work. The, the EPW article in 2016 had focused on the preparation of the NRC in Assam. And uh, this article focused at a particular stage where the preparation of the NRC had reached uh, uh, the stage of field verification. 
And whereas there was a popular and political consensus around the NRC, there was also uh, anxieties around the uh, validation of documents and who were left, who got left behind or left out of the process because of the way in which documents were being looked at. And in this context, uh, it became uh, now what was struck me was the emergence of uh, a specific kind of citizenship for Assam that the NRC had affirmed. No, uh, NRC as it was being prepared in Assam had affirmed which was uh, a hyphenated citizenship where one could be an Indian and an Assamese, which was, of course, possible you know, earlier in terms of how people identified themselves you know, as belonging to a nation, but also having specific uh, state and regional identities through language or uh, whatever other resources. But this became affirmed in the legal vocabulary of citizenship in India, which was you know, hitherto unprecedented. Right. And just focusing on the most recent EPW article for which you've chosen to examine a parliamentary report on the bill. Can you tell me more about why you chose to focus on this report and your research process more broadly? The JPC becomes important in this context because both the CAA and the NRC have in some senses their roots in 2003 amendment in the Citizenship Act. And they emerge as two different kinds of tendencies, which would appear to be discrepant and dissonant because they are embedded in different kinds of reasonings. But in the particular moment at which the CAA from 2016 became part of the political vocabulary of the uh, the current regime, the two have become conjoined in articulating a particularistic citizenship and seem to be therefore working together. And the JPC becomes an important source, the report of the JPC becomes an important source for looking at how this uh, uh, cohabitation of what were, what were two dissonant uh, tendencies in the Citizenship Act uh, happened. And in terms of uh, you know, the ways in which a political scientist would look at a, a government report, you know, a government report which would be an expression of the way in which the committee went about its task. The entire report is a, a manifestation of uh, you know, what the committee did, who it met, you know, what kind of fieldwork it carried out, you know, who were the witnesses who deposed before it, who were the stakeholders it identified. So in, in, in some ways, the JPC report is about uh, the way in which one can look at the innards of the state, you know, the way in which the state functions and the way in which it reasons out and rationalizes its decisions and what kind of legitimation practices it therefore evolves. And uh, no, of the 30 members who constituted the JPC belonging to different parties, uh, which also included the opposition parties, uh, there were nine members who ultimately dissented, which also shows that there was no consensus in uh, the recommendations that the JPC so, uh, made. So understanding how uh, decisions are reached, the process through which these decisions are made uh, or made me look at the JPC as a stable document. Politicians would be making comments in different fora, including the parliament. And these comments and these positions uh, may be ambiguous and they may change those positions later. But a report of a joint parliamentary committee or any government body is a stable document that you know, one could constantly refer to. 
And how does the National Register of Citizens figure in the JPC report? With the CAA, the uh, rationality behind the National Register of Citizens in Assam is unsettled. No, uh, the political popular consensus on the NRC has become somewhat unsettled. And the way in which the Assamese civil society has responded to the CAA has been particularly significant because they look at it as a violation of the compact that they entered into with the Indian state in 1985. And they say any violation of that compact is unconstitutional and they should have been made part of you know, whatever decisions that would unsettle the accord and they would construe the CAA as one of the ways in which the accord is being unsettled. Looking at this contradiction became important for me and the JPC gives insights into the contradictions that one can perhaps see between the CAA and the NRC. And what were your findings about this contradiction that you've identified with the CAA and the NRC? The significant term in the CAA is illegal migrant. And the NRC is also concerned with the category of the illegal migrant. Now, the way in which these categories are used in the CAA and the NRC had their roots in the 2003 amendments, the amendment to the Citizenship Act in 2003. The 2003 amendment for the first time inserted the category illegal migrant in the provisions of citizenship by birth. Now, to say that a person would be an Indian citizen only if you know, the person was born to Indian parents and one of his parents was not an illegal migrant. So whereas the 1985 amendment had used the category illegal migrant, that category was used only in the context of Assam. But the category illegal migrant in the birthright status of uh, citizenship was inserted through the 2003 amendment. And the 2003 amendment also put in place the provision asking uh, the government you know, if it wanted, it didn't make it compulsory, to prepare a National Register of Citizens. And the, the citizenship rules that were made subsequently laid down the procedures for uh, the preparation of the National Register of Citizens. And an exceptional procedure was put in place for Assam, where you know, unlike the rest of India, the people of Assam would have to apply for their names to be inserted in the National Register of Citizens. And they had to you know, prove that they, they, their names were part of the NRC 1951 or the electoral rolls up to 24th March 1971. Or they could trace their legacy to a legacy person whose name was in that legacy data. So the category of illegal migrant becomes the important link category that brings the CA and the NRC together in this contemporary moment. And this has been, of course, contested on different grounds across the country. A, the CA has been contested for bringing in an idea of citizenship that's alien to the Indian constitution because it identifies religion as the basis of citizenship. And there is a possibility then of discrimination. The CA, of course, does not take away citizenship, but it does promote an idea of citizenship, which identifies India as the natural home of people who belong to particular religions and which therefore also implies that people belong to belonging to a specific religion, Islam, would perhaps have their natural homes elsewhere. 
So that is an, an ideological framing of the CAA, uh, which makes uh, a legal framing of citizenship in the CAA potentially uh, exclusionary. The NRC is, of course, about the way in which the, the state would make itself competent through documentary practices to acquire uh, and this is especially important in, in contexts where in post-1990s, especially the idea of spectral terrorism, the idea of the security state, where the, the figure of the illegal migrant becomes a dangerous uh, figure, a figure that has the potential of unleashing risks to the rest of society. So it's the idea of illegal migrant, of course, becomes an, a category that the state has the power to deploy, to weed out uncomfortable, awkward categories of people you know, who would not have the documents, required documents. So both these, then the CA and the NRC, come together then to present an idea of citizenship, which is not just exclusionary, but it makes the philosophic basis of citizenship more entrenched in the ideas of blood and belonging. So that's how the two have come together. And does this relate to what you've said about liberal democracies and their tendencies to enfranchise and be internally inclusive while remaining externally exclusive? The long discussion that the JPC gives is liberal citizenship. And it says that liberal citizenship is about you no know, people. It's inclusionary. Now, it actually says it's inclusionary, but it's also based on creating boundaries between those who are part of this community of citizens and those who are not part of this community of citizens. So it says it is important to identify those who are part of this community because the membership itself is consequential. It has consequences for the kind of rights you have. So you you have the right to vote because you are a citizen and you have a claim to resources because you are a citizen. So the idea of liberal citizenship in, in the JPC's framework is about a solidarity of citizenship, which also has the space to absorb immigrants. And absorption of immigrants is important to create the solidarity of citizenship. And this solidarity is important to ensure the consequential rights that people ought to have. And this is, this is quite in line with the kind of tendencies that one can see globally in, in the context of transnationally mobile populations, there has been a constant lament of anxieties over dilution of national citizenship and a crisis that this citizenship has put in place because of the destabilization of national belonging. Here, the figure of the migrant has become integral to restrictive regimes of citizenship, not merely because the migrant is somebody who depletes scarce resources, but also because uh, uh, he or she changes the demographic profile of the country and also unsettles its cultural coherence. And this is something that you see in other countries as well, which have made laws where deprivation of citizenship on grounds of Security risks, for example, has become rampant for overcoming the crisis in citizenship. And uh, most of the time, the deprivation of citizenship is also justified on the grounds that it is serving a public good. And it's, it's serving a public good because deprivation is important for the security of the country, not just the security of the country as in against uh, aggression or a threat to its sovereignty, but also security in terms of the kind of resources that the country needs to 
secure. So in pursuit of uh, good government and the pursuit of public good, there have been changes in nationality laws worldwide. And I think uh, most important and one that has also become part of uh, popular literature, particularly I can refer to a book by Kamila Shamsi, Home Fire, where there is a fictional rendition of the way in which national citizenship laws have changed in Britain since 2002, where the British government can actually deprive its citizens of citizenship, even if they were born in Britain, uh, for acting in ways which are prejudicial to the interests of the United Kingdom, provided they possess a second nationality and would not be rendered stateless. But more recently, particularly since 2014, a naturalized person in Britain can be deprived of citizenship, even if uh, he or she does not have a second nationality or is an OCI from Pakistan or somewhere else, even if he or she was eligible to become a citizen of another country. And these kind of restrictions have exacerbated in most countries since the the global war against terror, etc. So there is then within the uh, context of uh, what the JPC sees as liberal citizenship, an idea that citizenship can enter into a crisis, national citizenship can enter into a crisis because of the presence of immigrants, but some of these immigrants can be absorbed in order to congeal the solidarity of national citizenship, and that's important for public good, and it's also important in order to uh, make certain rights uh, effective. And the right that it uh, cites particularly is the uh, right to vote. Uh, so political rights is an entitlement. And, and therefore, no, uh, such a citizenship, according to JPC, could be internally inclusive. And external in- exclusion is an imperative in order for this internal inclusivity to be achieved. Professor Roy, you're critical of the JPC's approach of selectively drawing from case law. And you also make the larger argument about the difficulty in applying a precedent in one case to another. Please tell me more about this and the judicial and sociological distinction between case law and the constitution. When we think of the constitution, the constitution is a larger, higher order law in terms of uh, uh, the rules and the principles that it specifies and how all other laws and the norms that would be produced or enforced or interpreted uh, would always have to have their systems of validation that go back to the constitution. So in terms of a generic definition of the term, the constitution would be a body of meta-norms and higher-order legal rules and principles that would provide legitimation and source to all other laws. And the interpretation would also have to be in compliance with uh, the constitutional norms. A case law or a precedent would be a legal decision that would be taken by a court or any other body that's authorized to take a decision. And uh, these bodies at the courts would interpret laws, and especially uh, in the interpretation of a law, if there is an ambiguity, an ambivalence, and in any difficulty in interpreting the law, a law would be interpreted and in the light of or with reference to uh, cases that have preceded a particular case and the principles that applied to the earlier case could probably be applied to uh, a succeeding case if there are conditions of similarity between the two, uh, which would then make the transference of the principles on which the interpretation is made a valid 
the jpc looks at the judgment by the supreme court a 1952 judgment the west bengal uh, west bengal versus anwar ali sarkar case judgment where uh, the supreme court had put in place two criteria for validating whether or not a particular law was justified and these two particular criteria were intelligible differentiator reasonable classification as now it said these were the only grounds on which a law could make a distinction among people or between classes of cases or classes of offenses only if the differentiation was intelligible and the classification was reasonable so only then could a law be considered could be tested against and found uh, valid against a scrutiny against article 14 of the indian constitution and the jpc says the jpc refers to the anwar ali kasarkar judgment and the two conditions of validation intelligible differentiator and reasonable classification to say that both of these are being adhered to in the caa so the differentiation is intelligible and the classification is reasonable so the classification has correspondence to the objectives of the act but the anwar ali sarkar case is an entirely different case because it refers to the special west bengal special courts act and the objective of that act as you know the preamble said was to provide for speedier trials for certain cases of offenses and you know empowers the state government to constitute special courts which are not the conditions which are which correspond to the context of the caa so we are talking about entirely different conditions and entirely different principles and entirely different contexts and perhaps there is no transferability between the justification uh, that the jpc sought uh, by referring to the anwar ali sarkar judgment so the strength of the precedent would depend entirely upon the degree of consonance that you know one case will would have with another case so the reasoning of the jpc to my mind is faulty in that context because it disregards the incommensurability of the precedent and it also does not take into account the fact that later judgments have also exhorted particularly in the nas foundation judgment the the courts said that you no know, in in cases of ambivalence in cases uh, and particularly we could also think of uh, the uh, context in which the precedents put an unnecessary burden on cases and therefore compromise the certainty of our decision making uh, that judges should deploy critical morality you no know, and this critical morality would substitute public morality by invoking constitutional morality which is found you no know, across the text of the act in particular the fundamental rights and the directive principles of state policy and the preamble which would together form a distinct and tangible code of morality that the judges need to take recourse to while deciding cases in which law has to be interpreted in the absence of precedents so that's something that i think i i also tried to point out to discuss in that article and i i think that's that's important because uh, uh, this is a different kind of act altogether which has a bearing on a uh, larger questions of you uh, know how we look at ourselves as a nation and how we look at ourselves as a citizen you know it's not like a criminal law that needs to be looked at it has larger normative bearings right and what is it about the government's interchanging use of the terms persecuted minorities and minority communities in the text of the act in government press releases and speeches in parliament and elsewhere 
Now, if you were to look particularly at the way in which uh, uh, the JPC had been defending the the exclusion of uh, uh, Muslims from the, those who were identified uh, for protection and exclusion of other countries from the category of minority communities that the JPC had identified, uh, was to uh, especially emphasize, and, and this is something that comes across in the way in which the JPC goes about focusing on the the task that it has at hand. And the task that it has at hand is to justify uh, the CAA. And the justification would require, according to the JPC, is not to lose sight of the objectives of the Act. And the objectives of the Act are very clear. No, that is to provide protection against religious persecution. And in, in the course of its argument, it says that it does not want to lose sight of a protection against religious persecution as the primary objective of the act. And this comes out clearly in its responses to or the way it which, in which it reasons out its responses to those constitutional experts who advise the JPC to not use the word or to use a more capacious category of persecuted minorities instead of using minority communities and then identifying minority communities on the basis of religion. The constitutional experts uh, uh, suggested the use of persecuted minorities to uh, looking at a future context where the act may perhaps face uh, scrutiny, of it, which it is facing as at present on the ground that it violates specific uh, articles of fundament, the fundamental rights, uh, Article 25, Article 14 in particular. And in order to, to buttress it, uh, they said use persecuted minorities. And then uh, those who provided the JPC with the support to say that no, this charge can be defended against, uh, they say that it's perfectly possible to, to give a defense uh, against the charge that it violates Article 14. And the JPC also says that, and it quotes surprisingly and ironically so, it quotes the Sarban and Sonoval judgment to say that Sarban and Sonoval judgment of 2005, which uh, repealed the Illegal Migrants Determination by Tribunals Act, to say that no misconceived and misguided notions of secularism should stand in the way of you know, providing protection against religious persecution. So it's very clear in terms of the objectives of the Act and how it needs to go about uh, achieving the objectives of the Act. And the suggestions of the constitutional experts, according to the JPC, could be deferred and uh, in deference to what the legislative department uh, suggested to it as a possible defense of the uh, CAA in case the CAA was to come up for scrutiny in front of the uh, Supreme Court. Could you share some unanswered questions that you continue to investigate? I am looking at different aspects of uh, citizenship particularly uh, in the context of Assam, for example, I'm looking at the, the question of legacy and documents and how the question of legacy transforms the way in which documents uh, are looked at you know, in terms of public documents having evidentiary worth. So that's one question that I'm looking at. I'm also looking at the way in which uh, you know, uh, other sites of citizenship, particularly, uh, which get lost in this entire conversation about the CAA, for example, or the NRC. What are the other sites of citizenship which also 
uh, so the, for example, the land border agreement treaty in 2015 and the exchange of enclaves where it was actually possible to absorb you know, citizens uh, who were you know, Bangladeshis but continued to reside on Indian territories as Indian citizens. So how do we look at issues of liminality in such contexts? And also how uneven impact laws have in different sites. Now, for example, let's say non-national spaces, so same law would have different ramifications in other spaces. So the particular, if you look at the, the, the status of the petitions against the CAA, for example, a sequestering has happened you know, between the Tripura and Assam petitions and the petitions uh, and the other petitions. So, so there are ways in which people would look at these laws in different ways because it impacts them differently. And also looking at citizenship beyond law. So what, what is or how particularly the uh, contemporary moment is, uh, has been uh, a, a moment where uh, there has been an especially enhanced consciousness about the Constitution, which has, of course, some would say become the most popular uh, document or popular text in the present context. And a lot of popular protests have uh, uh, galvanized around the constitution. So the issues of ethics of popular protests that take recourse to the constitution as their uh, resource and uh, inspiration uh, would be you know, another way of looking at the question of citizenship and also looking at you know, the idea of lawmaking itself. Is lawmaking or law is about force of law is, or are questions of deliberative content of law equally important? So those are some of the issues that become uh, extremely relevant in our present context. There was so much to learn from your findings and thank you for sharing it with us in detail, Professor Roy. Uh, thank you so much, Abhishek. Thank you for having me on your program. What I found most interesting from what Professor said was the way in which citizenship has become increasingly thought of as something that is tied to communities rather than nation-states, a trend she identified as taking place at a faster rate since the 1990s. There are so many other details that we didn't get to fully discuss, and I recommend reading the entire article written by Professor Roy that I've shared in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll hear from Dr. Mamta Pradhan and Dr. Devesh Roy about one of the world's largest food security programs, India's public distribution system. We'll learn about how changes to the method in which food and grains reach beneficiaries can significantly increase people's access to food. To make sure you don't miss out on that and our future podcasts, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We are available on Spotify, Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. And since we're new to podcasting, we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social at epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with your feedback. And if you like what we're doing, do share it with interested folks. Take care and tune in next week.